The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, how many of you have seen that? Do you remember that one? So, um, so if in case you missed the, the lyrics, the song goes, Users are losers, and losers are users, so don't use drugs. Uh, if you know a user, even part of the time, tell them to quit. Take a bite out of crime. Now, there's another version with an extra verse that goes, Users don't win, and winners don't use. But you see, there is a, this was part of the 1980s war on drugs. And there's an addict narrative that's at work here. And the narrative is like this. Addicts are criminals. They are bad people. They are losers. And you don't want to be like that, do you? So, so stay away from drugs. That's not a new narrative. That's, it's something that goes back as far as the Gospels. When, when people watched the lifestyle of Jesus and they saw how he ate and they saw him drinking wine, they, they accused him of being a drunk. They say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and a sinners. And, and so as far back as Jesus' day, you've got people who are using the term drunkard as an insult. Like, Jesus is clearly a drunk. And it's, it kind of makes me wonder, like, what if somebody actually in those days had a drinking problem? Like, would they mock him? And it's like, yeah, they actually would. Because, because in conservative circles, addiction is mainly a sin issue. It's a, it's a choice. It's preventable. It's a sign of, of weakness. And it's the addict's fault. Now, there's a, a Christian counselor named Ed Welch who, who literally wrote the book on this. His book is called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. And in his book, he says, Addictions are more than self-destructive behaviors. They are violations of God's laws. It's not like a disease. It's something we do rather than we catch. We confess it rather than treat it. The de- disease is in our hearts rather than our bodies. And only forgiveness Uh, Only the forgiveness and cleansing found in the blood of the great physician is sufficient to bring thorough healing. So he wrote the book on addictions, but so did another Christian counselor named Gerald May. So Dr. Gerald May, in his book on addictions, he says that our addictions are our own worst enemies. They enslave us with chains that are of our own making, and yet paradoxically are virtually beyond our control. Addiction also makes idolaters of us all because it forces us to worship these objects of attachment, preventing us from truly, freely loving God and one another. Now, both are saying that addiction is a problem, but for one, it's mainly a problem of rebellion against God. For the other, it's mainly a problem of destructive choices, right? You see the the, the tension there? And it's like, well, which one of those is it? And that's not an easy question to answer um, because I actually don't think it's a question of true versus false. I think that we can think of addiction as sin and we can think of addiction as disease. Both of those things can be true at the same time, even if one of those views is is probably closer to the center of the heart of God. In fact, I want to offer my thesis this morning. This is sort of what guides my thought on on, uh, the subject of addiction. Addiction is a theological issue. And, and our response to addicts and their addictions shows how we think God should treat them, whether or not that is his revealed will. Okay, let me say that again. Our response to addicts and their addictions shows how we think that God should treat them, whether that's his revealed will or not.
That's sort of my, that's the thesis that guides me this morning. Now, we are in this series, this is actually week six of a seven-part series called In Hamilton As It Is In Heaven, where we have been talking about a number of different subjects and realities that face our Hamilton neighbors. We've been talking about poverty and homelessness and child safety and mental illness. And today we're talking about addiction. So my aim is to sort of uh, understand what's going on in, in this reality of addiction vis-a-vis Hamilton. Uh, I want to go to scripture in order to construct a theology of addiction. And then I want to apply that on the problem of addiction that we, that we see in Hamilton in order to learn how to love addicts well. Whether we're talking about addicts sort of like out there in the culture or addicts in our midst. So to begin, I want to ask, what is, what is the situation in Hamilton? What does addiction in Hamilton actually look like? And it turns out it's easier to measure for some addictions than it is for others. Like, for example, we could talk about alcohol. And we know that 48% of Hamiltonians drink too much based on provincial guidelines. Smoking is also a problem in Hamilton, but not as much as it used to be. Um, we, there are fewer smokers in Hamilton than 10 years ago, but still we are higher than the provincial average. It's, it's not hard to measure drug use in Hamilton. And the way that we do that isn't by asking people, are you a drug user? But we are ab- actually able to keep track of the visits to the emergency room because, of, because somebody had overdosed on, on a certain substance. And so, for example, cocaine. We have stats from 2012 and 2017. We went from 36 visits to the ER in 2012 to 76 visits in 2017. So that number more than doubled. When we talk about cannabis, marijuana, in 2012, there were 21 ER visits that number went to 64 visits in 2017. The number more than tripled. And opioids are a big problem in Hamilton. We are 59% higher than the provincial average for opioids in Hamilton. We know that opioid deaths in Hamilton went from 37 in 2012 to 122 in 2018. Another sort of dynamic we can look at is drug crime, drug-related crime reported to the police. Um, There was a study done in McLean's magazine in 2019. It ranked 237 cities that that have a a population of 10,000 people or more. Hamilton has more drug crime than 159 of them in Canada. And and, and that's that's not cool, right? That's not okay. But we might think, well, at least we're not as bad as some cities. Like we... Surely we're not as bad as Toronto, and, and you would be wrong. In fact, per capita, we have twice the impaired driving as Toronto, and we have three times as much drug trafficking and production as Toronto. Three times as much drug trafficking and production as Toronto per 1,000 people. So we, so we need to understand drug addiction and crime that's related to drug addiction, these are problems in Hamilton, Right? At the same time, we also know that substances aren't the only kind of addictions that Hamiltonians face. We like Most addictions that we could be talking about don't have the same sort of social stigma that drugs and, and other substances do. But we know that in Hamilton, one in five teens is on social media for more than five hours a day. We know that 9% of teenagers in Hamilton are playing more than five hours a day of video games. In fact, in my, in my study for this morning, I came across a list of almost 200 different addictions or obsessions that sort of show up and master us like addictions. And so addictions can be things like coffee or art 
or social causes, or home improvement, or drinking, or drugs, or binge eating, or dieting, or exercise, or housekeeping, cleaning, sports, gambling, self-harm, television, gossip, work, money, even keeping up your appearance, according to the, to the, to the research. Now, is it really appropriate to call these things addictions? According to a Canadian physician whose name is Gabor Matei, he says, absolutely. He says, people use cocaine to self-medicate depression. People use alcohol, cannabis, and opiates to self-medicate anxiety. Incidentally, people use gambling or shopping to self-medicate because these activities also elevate dopamine levels in the brain. There's no difference between one addiction and the other just different targets. But the brain systems involved and the target chemicals are the same no matter what the addiction. And so here is the situation facing us right now. We know that Hamilton is doing worse than a lot of cities in in Canada when it comes to visible addictions like substances. But when it comes to less visible addictions, we aren't even counting because we don't have the metrics for those. And that means that there are all sorts of addicts out there who don't realize that they are addicted because they believe McGraw the crime dog when he says that only bad guys and criminals and losers are addicts. And so that's not actually helpful for us. The next next question we need to ask is what scripture has to say about this? I think it's really important that we come up with a theology of addiction. As we let scripture speak to the issue of addiction, I think there are three important ideas that come out. And the first is this one. An addict can be anybody, okay? An addict can be anybody, not just bad guys, okay? So you've got the Apostle Paul, who in, first, in 2 Corinthians 7, he talks about this thorn in the flesh that he had that was, that was given to him, a messenger of Satan, and he says that three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, So Paul got used to being in a position of weakness and being unable to get rid of this serious problem that he really wished that he could. And he said, when I am weak, then I'm strong. And then in Romans 7, which we heard earlier, we heard this is the Apostle Paul saying that his normal experience of the Christian life is that I don't understand what I'm doing. I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. He says, in my inner self, I delight in God's law But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law uh, of sin in the parts of my body. And so you need to imagine what it's like to be Paul in his lived experience every day. He's got this thorn that torments him. And, And some people think that that might be some kind of an addiction or some kind of a sexual sin or temptation. Maybe it's some kind of a physical disability. Some people think that Paul's thorn is actually a person who went around tormenting him. And Paul went and he begged with God, he begged God to remove that thorn. And God's posture towards that, towards him was like, um, no, that's, that is not my will for you in this situation. My grace is sufficient for you in this situation. And Paul's, again, Paul's lived experience is that he's not in control. He is weak. And there are things in his life that do battle with his will. He's got these these actions and these desires that he can't control. 
And in anybody else, we would call that suffering. And, and we would say, God is with you in, in your suffering. And, and, and so if this can be the experience of Paul, an apostle, I'm pretty sure that this can happen to any of us, that any of us can find ourselves wrestling with either desires or actions that we wish we could, we could control. So anyone can be an addict, not just the bad guys. Another key idea in our theology of addiction is this. God's problem with addiction is what it does to the addict. Okay? The problem with addiction is what it does to the addict. So what I mean here is related to a word drunkenness, which comes up in Scripture quite a bit. In, in Scripture, drunkenness specifically refers to a person who is, is addicted to too much wine. Their life is oriented around their, the, the bottle. Uh, and they are hardly ever sober. And in some ways, I think that drunkenness, though, can apply to lots of addictions, whether we're talking about drugs or pornography or gaming or work or, or, or whatever the addiction. In, in Scripture, drunkenness can apply to all of these. And, and God tells us in Scripture why drunkenness is a problem. The reason is because of what it does. Like, who's got problems? You want to know who's got problems? Proverbs 23, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has uh, conflict? Who has complaints and wounds for no reason? Who's got red eyes from crying? Verse 30, those who linger over wine, those who go looking for mixed wine. And he warns you, the reader, don't gaze at wine because it's red, because it gleams in the cup and it goes down smooth. In the end, it bites like a snake and it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. You'll say absurd things. And so we could go on. There's, we could say a lot about this passage. But this, the problem here in, with, with drunkenness isn't mainly the wine. Right? You see that, right? The, the, the alcohol isn't the main problem. The main problem here is that this person is lingering over it. This person is going out in constant search of more and more wine. Their life is controlled by their need for more wine, and it's ruining his life. It's ruining his life. It bites him. It stings him. And it, it's, it's dangerous. And like that is not what God wants for us. And then later in, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul Galatians 5, he talks about drunkenness along with a number of other things like idolatry and jealousy and sorcery. And he calls these things the works of the flesh. And he says, I'm warning you about these things that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We need to hear that. Those who practice drunkenness won't inherit the kingdom of God. And we should ask though, why not? Like, what is it about these? Are they, are, is there something that is uniquely offensive about these sins to God? And I think the answer comes a couple of verses earlier. You go back a couple of verses in Galatians 5 to verse 17. Paul is talking about how the desires of the flesh are at war with the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, and he says in verse 17 that these two things, these two realities are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. In other words, God hates drunkenness. He doesn't want drunkenness for us because of what it does to you. You're trapped. You're at war with yourself. You're not doing what you want and what you know you're supposed to, just like Paul in Romans 7. It's the same point that he makes in Ephesians 5, which is a famous passage when, it talks, when we are talking about addiction. Paul says, don't be foolish. He says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
And you know, a lot of people, maybe maybe you, use this passage in order to make a rule about drinking alcohol. And just so you know, that is not Paul's point. What Paul's saying is, look, I know why you get drunk. I know why you practice drunkenness. It's in order, it's because it offers relief. It helps you to cope with the difficulties of life. But there is no comparison between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. Like it's not even close. So why would you choose drunkenness over being filled with the Spirit? Don't. Be filled with the Spirit. That's Paul's point. It's not about what is allowed. It's about whether which one of those two lifestyles is going to allow you to, to love God more and to become more like Christ and to experience more of a flourishing life. That's what Paul wants for us. And that's what he means when he says in 1 Corinthians 6, which Emily Rosita talked to us about, everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial. Candy is permissible, but a bag of candy a day is not probably beneficial. He goes on and says, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And so the the point here is that addiction is a problem for lots of reasons, but the main problem, it seems, at the bottom of it all, addiction is a problem because addiction robs us of our capacity to enjoy God. Okay? That seems to be the main problem in scripture. And the third key idea in our theology of addictions is this, that the Jesus preferred response, his response of choice to people who were suffering was compassion. Jesus' response of choice was compassion. What I mean here is that when Jesus encounters somebody who's struggling, no matter whether they're no matter whose fault it is, Jesus shows them compassion. Now, compassion is a word that comes up a lot in Scripture. It literally means suffering with. Compassion means you are are stepping across the line in order to make a person's suffering your own, to, to make their problem your problem. That's what compassion does. And compassion is a big emphasis in the teaching of Jesus and in the ministry of Jesus. It shows up a lot in his teaching, like in Luke Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You've got this this Samaritan who goes out and he looks after this man who'd been robbed and he certainly didn't owe it to him. You know, and and, and any help that the Samaritan offered the guy was going to come at his expense and he does it anyway because that this guy's biggest need in that moment isn't to be condemned and taught about which road he should have taken. His biggest need is to be found and helped. In Luke 15... It's compassion that moved the the father in the story of the prodigal son out in search of his son and embracing him and welcoming him home. Again, the father didn't owe it to the son. The son had screwed everything up. It was his own fault. And the father could have said, well, are you ready to apologize? Like, do you realize what you've put us through? Are you sober? He doesn't do any of that. He welcomes his son back without question, without condition, because the son has been lost and now he's found. And now compassion shows up a lot in the ministry of Jesus too. In uh, in Luke 7, you've got Jesus who comes across this widow whose son has just died in the town of Nain. And she's grieving over the loss of her son because he's all that she has. And, and Jesus doesn't say to her, look, I'm sorry, but you know, death is a part of life. And he's in a better place now. But I'm sorry, I'm really busy. Like, this isn't my problem. No, he makes it his problem. 
And it says that when he saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said, don't weep. He came and touched the open coffin. The pallbearers stopped. And he said, young man, I tell you to get up. He raises, the young, the, he raises this young man back to life out of compassion. In Matthew 15, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of hungry adults who, have, who are gathered around in order to hear his teaching. And Jesus sees that they're hungry and he doesn't say, you know what, These, they're adults. Like, this is their responsibility. Like, let them feed themselves for goodness sakes. He says, I have compassion on the crowd. They've already stayed with me three days and I they have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry. And he has compassion on them. And that's what moves him to, to feed them. In Mark 9, last one, Jesus traveling town to town, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And he's healing people with all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. And it says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Now, why? Why did he have compassion on them? Because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. So what is it that moves Jesus to compassion for the crowds as he goes town to town? It's that he sees them as they really are. You know, he, we could say about the crowds that they are like they're sinful. They're, they're broken. They are annoying. They are selfish. And they are idolaters. All of those things are true. But what stirs Jesus uh, to compassion is the fact that they are lost. They are scattered like sheep without a shepherd. They are lost and they need help. And so we have a theology of addiction that's emerging here. And it turns out users aren't losers. It turns out addicts aren't uniquely bad people. It turns out that anybody can be an addict. It also turns out God's main problem with addiction isn't so much the substance or the object of the addiction. It's what it does to the addict. Third, we see that compassion is the Christian response to suffering, regardless of whose fault it is. Now, are we saying addicts are victims? Are we saying that they don't need to repent? No, we are not saying that. Addicts do need to repent. In fact, it's very easy to get an addict to repent and to feel bad about their sin. We can even get an addict to stop using, we can even get an addict to stop using their substance for a while. We can get them to do that. But we also know that the addiction itself isn't the addict's main problem. And I think that these are really important elements of a theology of addiction. The addiction itself isn't the main problem. You know, I quoted earlier from a doctor named Gabor Mate. To my knowledge, he is not a Christian, but he shows a lot of grace when he says that it's impossible to understand addiction without asking what relief the addict finds or hopes to find in the drug or the addictive behavior. So the question is never why the addiction, but why the pain? Let me say that again. The question is never why the addiction, but why the pain? So I think this is our, our theology of addiction has to say that, yes, of course, addicts are sinners, but even more, addicts are lost. Addicts are suffering. Addicts are not themselves. Addicts, addicts are sick and they need healing. They need hope that, that things can be different. And, and so the, the last question is, is what do we do with this? How do we put this theology into action? Specifically, how do we respond to addicts? 
And I think that there are, there are some important things that come out when we try to apply this theology of addiction to the situation in Hamilton. The first is this, that it be, actually begins with us, that we are going to repent as needed. We are going to repent. We're going to repent for looking down on certain addictions and certain addicts while overlooking other ones. Like, I don't even know, like, where does that come from? Like, the addict narrative says that that strung out homeless guy uh, on the street asking for change, he can't be trusted with your spare change, but the single mom outside of a, of a Walmart, that she does deserve your change. And I'm like, really? Like, where did that come from? Like, that's not okay. And we've gotten used to the idea that there are just some people, respectable people who struggle with porn or who will starve themselves to keep thin or who will read celebrity news uh, for hours and hours all day while neglecting their family and jobs and kids. But the guy who pawns stolen tools so that he can pay for meth, that guy's a menace. That guy's an addict. And I'm like, really? Like, that is not okay. And if if all we've done is divide the city into addicts whose addictions match ours, or they're as respectable as ours, and then there are the addicts whose addictions are worse than ours, that is not okay. That is not okay. It reminds me of Francis Schaeffer, who said that biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. And so I think that, first of all, there's all kinds of room for you and I to repent first. Next, we're going to love addicts whether or not it changes anything. Whether or not it works. Of course, we want things to turn around and we pray that things will change. But you know what they teach you in a recovery program? It's that if you could have fixed this, you would have fixed it by now. And so we're going to support our addicted friends and neighbors. We're going to cheer them on. We're going, but we're not going to expect change to come easily. We are going to love addicts whether or not it seems to work. The third choice we're going to uh, practice, I think, as we apply this theology of addiction, we're going to love addicts whether or not they appreciate it. Right? We're going to love addicts whether or not they appreciate it. Because maybe they thank you and maybe they don't. Maybe they actually tell you off. Some addicts, they just aren't going to understand or appreciate how hard it is to love them and to support them. And maybe they're going to push you away. Maybe they're going to hurt you and they're going to lie to you. Maybe they're going to steal from you. Maybe they're going to betray you. But compassion says stick. You stick with them. You stick with them. Because you know what? It, I came, something I came across in my prep for this morning was that the opposite of addiction isn't actually sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. I think that's so important. So we're going to love addicts whether or not they appreciate it. And the fourth thing is this. The fourth thing is we're going to love addicts whether or not they end up believing in Jesus. Okay? We're going to love them whether or not they believe in Jesus. Because like maybe the, the addict becomes a believer, is baptized, joins the church. That would be awesome. And we pray for that. We're going to get on our knees and we're going to pray for that person to become a follower of Jesus. But you know, I've done, I've witnessed to a lot of addicts and I've seen it go both ways. Like just so you know, I don't expect unhealthy people to make healthy choices every time. Like, is that what you expect? Do you you really expect that? So again, we're going to get on our knees. We're going to pray for addicts to become believers. 
Um, but we're going to leave the results in God's hands. And just so we know what we're praying for. You know, it's true that the gospel corrects the person who thinks that the addict's main need is to repent. But I think the gospel also corrects those who think that the addict's only need is to be free from addiction. I think it corrects both people. Like, just so we're clear, the gospel is not, God will take away your addiction. Like, he doesn't promise that. Just so you know, I'm sorry. Like, he doesn't promise that. He does promise that whatever your addiction is, it doesn't define you. He promises that your addiction doesn't cost you his love for you. It is, it, he does promise that he's not ashamed of you. He promises he doesn't see you as a criminal or a loser or a burnout. You know, he promises that his grace is sufficient for you, that he's with you. He promises that you have a, a family in Christ to come around you with, with, with compassion and to offer hope and to, to, to support you on your journey towards, towards healing and wholeness in Christ, whether or not you fi- gain final victory over that addiction. And, you know, and, and that's a real hope. And just so you know, that is a thousand times better than anything that our addictions offer. And we can have that now. Like we, we can have that today. God isn't waiting to heal us until we, until we deserve it. You know, he's not waiting to forgive us and restore us and be reconciled to us until we show that we are sorry enough. That's not what he's waiting for. And so whatever addictions it is that they're carrying, whatever addictions we are carrying, there is real and true hope. And that is great news. But I confess, it doesn't always feel that way. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't always feel that way. Like not long ago, maybe a couple of months ago, Scott McIntosh and I were out for a late night walk on a Friday night. We find ourselves on Barton Street between Gage and Ottawa, which, as you probably know, that's probably not a place you want to find yourself on a Friday night. But we just found ourselves there because we weren't really paying attention to where we're going. We came across a guy who was disheveled. His hands were literally purple. He was, he was a mess. And he asked us for change. And he was high as a kite. He was stoned out of his mind. And I know that because I actually found his crack pipe a little later and I smashed it. We didn't have any change to give him, but we were so close to a restaurant that we decided we're going to give him, like, we'll, we'll get him some food. And he, he agreed. And as we were talking and walking together, we got to hear a bit of his story. He learned that Scott's wife had just had a baby. He actually asked us if we would take him to Scott's home so that he could see if Scott's wife was hot. At one point, when we got to the restaurant, he was just super rude to the woman behind the counter. After a while, I asked him if I could pray with him, and he said yes. And when I, as soon as I was done, I, as soon as I was done praying, and I said amen, he only goes, he says, hey, guess what, guys? I'm God. I'm God. And so, like, there was no come to Jesus moment between us and that guy that night. Like he didn't make it easy. In fact, he was he acted like kind of a jerk. And I'm like, of course he did. And I, I confess, I wish that I had a better sense of what to do in those moments, but I just, I, but I kind of don't. Like, I don't know if we should have confronted him more about his drug use. I just know that if it were me and if I were as stoned as he was, I know that I wouldn't remember any of it the next day anyway. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. The other thing is I realized that this guy wasn't born an addict. This isn't probably what he chose for himself. This isn't the dream that he had for himself when he was a kid. This isn't the dream that his parents had for him as a, as a boy. Now, as a father of, of young kids, I have big dreams and big hopes for my kids. And I, and I looked at this guy and I thought to myself, once upon a time, he was somebody's son. He was somebody's Jamie. 
Maybe the addict around you, that was, some, that was, some, that was somebody's son, that was somebody's daughter. And I, my prayer would be that if one of my kids, God forbid, or one of your kids found themselves down the road in a situation, the same situation that this guy was in, I would hope and pray that there are people who will meet him and treat him like a person and listen to his story and feed him and even pray with him, even if he's not gonna remember what you said the next day, that you would treat him like a person. And just so you know, I haven't always felt that way. This is a theological shift for me and I'm inviting you to join me in that shift as well. I think that if we do, if we're willing to make this shift and, and that we will respond to addicts more like Jesus did, whether we're talking about the addict out there in the culture or addicts among us in our own church family or in our very home. And if we do, that, my friends, is when it's going to be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. Thank you for listening.